second speaker of the day is Jale Mansour. She is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Um, she was born in Iran, uh, came to the U.S. when she was about 10 years old and said it was, uh, it was weird for sense reasons. And, and I don't know exactly what she means by that, but I'm sent the sense, the smells, the aesthetics, the politics. Um, she has written extensively about uh, art, uh, specifically abstractionism, fascism, uh, and she brings a Marxist analysis to the table with all of that. Uh, she is one of five editors who co-edited Communities of Sense, which was released in 2009. Uh, and she said that that was uh, for lost and lonely graduate students in the art history world. And that was sort of the emphasis behind the thing. She has Marshall Plan Modernism is another book of hers. And I'd like to welcome to the stage Jale Mansour, and we're very grateful to have you. Thank you. All right, so uh, first of all, I'm, I'm so honored to be here. I think the format of this event is really an, an astonishing miracle, especially for an academic and I hope to uh, try and replicate it if, if I ever can in a, in a outside, inside academic context, which is partly where I'm speaking from uh, today. But I'm very grateful to Brendan Kiley and Stuart Smithers for this, for this invitation. And I'm also uh, really nervous, even though I give lectures on modern art uh, twice weekly, for 26 weeks a year, et cetera, et cetera, to, to passing numbers of peoples that I don't often get to personally connect with, which is indeed very abstract. I'm, I'm nervous about this today. So I'm offering a semi-formal presentation that I hope will be to be brief. So uh, to follow, and in note form, I've got my, my armor here. Um, and if time permits, I'll be reading some passages uh, from the book that Brendan mentioned, Communities of Sense. I'll read some of the passages that I, I wrote uh, about a decade ago that I, I think are kind of strangely relevant all of a sudden, although I disowned them the minute I wrote them. Um, so today I'm offering my, my present gambit after approximately 20 years of researching what people think they mean when they use the word aesthetics. Um, and as many years reading aesthetic theory uh, from Kant to, to Adorno. But I want to say off the bat, straight up, that when I say the word aesthetics, the one thing it does not mean is representation. Uh, the politics of representation just boils down to what is good appears and what appears is good, to quote um, Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, which also, I think, pertains to the present order of spectacle under, under Trump and Twitter. Um, so aesthetics doesn't mean the same thing as representation, and I, maybe that'll make itself clear, hopefully, or we can talk about it later. But anyway, um, because I put intuition first uh, in the interest of both political and aesthetic autonomy, to which I'm nodding in the images on the screen, I'd say that my thoughts really come from looking at and talking about culture 
in light of debates about art, mostly with students and friends. So now I'm just sort of meta-level riffing on some vague preliminary conclusions I could make after teaching this stuff for a long time. I've put on the screen a handful of images that try to signal the arc of my first book, uh, whose or which premise was basically that there's a common root uh, in problems of political autonomy, autonomy from the market, autonomy from the state, uh, autonomy from external constraints and, and uh, apparatuses of power, and on the other hand, uh, aesthetic autonomy. But then the question is, what do we mean by that? So um, the uh, image on the lower left is the kind of artwork I was looking at as uh, the aforementioned lonely graduate student and I was thinking about the political, social, historical context it came out of, which is the uh, uh, post-war moment in Italy when Italy was being bankrolled uh, by American finance, which caused a massive exodus from the agrarian south to the rural north to lubricate those factories with human uh, labor to generate capital which in turn generated that skim level of culture that is art. Wherever there's rapid accumulation, there's art, whatever that might mean. Uh, and then I looked into the politics of that moment that yielded uh, what is known as autonomia after the worker movement, which is the bridge between uh, the ultra left that broke with the Communist Party and what uh, in North America is known as a kind of proto-punk kind of thing uh, anarcho, uh, anti-status, anti-authority moment. Uh, and then uh, my, I was finishing up my book under the sort of olive press of the tenure clock, which was misery in hell, um, but always looking out of my ivory tower balcony at what was going on in the Bay Area, because of course the, this uh, general strike had been called uh, in November of 2011, just when I was trying to think about how autonomia might be relevant now uh, in this geopolitical context in this century, there it was right in front of my face. Uh, and then these are some flyers and images from that moment, uh, as are these images. The uh, thing on the right is an image of a work by the art collective Claire Fontaine. Uh, and a French and Italian collective started out as graduate students working with Agamben, broke out on their own, again via reading group, it's always reading groups, and then uh, started making art that, that really operates in a strange way as a kind of um, very transparent uh, uh, ultra-left propaganda which then begs the question of, of what is meant by propaganda, because we know that that word is coded so very negatively. I'm showing uh, on the uh, left the cover of a book by uh, the collective vaguely associated with Claire Fontaine, Tikkun, their uh, book, Introduction to Civil War, which was translated and put out by Semiotext on MIT uh, in 2010-11 or so. And um, what I'm interested in about both of these objects is how they signify and resonate uh, in the kind of completely closed and abstract world of art discourse, and on the other hand, in, in the kind of uh, practical world of, of how one starts to survive and live in everyday life should capital begin to collapse. 
How does one, or how does one uh, stoke or abet that potential collapse by forms of, of withdrawal and subtraction in the present? The general strike, again, that was the, the, the sort of passionate moment of conclusion for me. But I noted that the book on the left is often dangerous because the language in the title, the uh, kind of antagonism of, of, the, of the, yeah, the language, and how that is read differently by different demographics depending on who's holding that material. So my first semester at UBC, there was some concern because an MFA candidate was holding uh, the Invisible Committee's um, The Coming Insurrection. And now that book is in many an art school pocket, but it was being held by a, a recent immigrant from Iran who had been in prison, the famous you know, Iranian Evan Jail, because of his participation in uh, the, the uprising of summer 2009. So there's a way that these things constellate, the sort of aesthetics and poetics constellate in context, in uh, spaces and times that, that was beginning to interest me. So, um, what do we mean now by aesthetics? So, some, uh, first, first of all, I'm showing uh, a, an image that is the copyright of a book uh, entitled Anti-Aesthetic, edited by Hal Foster, came out in 1983, and it was put out um, on Bay Press, which is a local press from the Seattle area. And I, I just often note to myself uh, the irony when these kinds of debates about high and low and this and that come up in this one-dimensional capitalist culture that we're in, um, that the matrix for the October group, which is frequently associated with a kind of snobby Ivy League culture um, space, is indeed Seattle. And uh, Hal Foster's book, The Anti-Aesthetic, uh, which was, again, his, his own do-it-yourself uh, initiative as a graduate student. So I, I want to go back to that moment and hold it in our mind for just a second um, as, I, as I float some of those gambits I mentioned. So some preliminary notes and conclusions after these 20 years might begin with a nod to the parents, as it were, in the October group. But that beginning quickly crashes into its own limits. Hal Foster's edited volume entitled Anti-Aesthetic of 1983 studded with luminaries like Jean Baudrillard, Kenneth Frampton, Frederick Jameson, Rosalind Krauss, Edward Said, da 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 notwithstanding, only the right has grasped aesthetics as such. A structural contradiction within the present order of totally managed instrumentality, our everyday life managed by ends that forgot their means and structures that deny their base. By that I mean the kind of circulation of everyday life, but no one knows where running water or food comes from. No one can nurture seeds, right? The soil has become toxic. There's a kind of uh, severing between uh, material everyday life and this kind of ideologically, financially stoked virtual space of, of the, the cosmopolitan center. So, by understanding aesthetics as a cognitive faculty other to reason, and yet still a cognitive faculty, an operation on perception that sets the condition for the possibility of a politics, any politics, be it libertarian or authoritarian, left or right, meta or enacted, imposed, electoral, spectacular, for any politics to emerge. The right has grasped what I'll temporarily call the Kant with Sod phenomenon, to describe the mass effect 
of so-called aesthetics. The Kant with Saad phenomenon is a nod to a whole bunch of disciplinary discourses like psychoanalysis, uh, Jacques Lacan tried to argue or augur a kind of right libertarianism by mashing up uh, the first guy to theorize art and aesthetics, Kant, with uh, Saad. And Adorno did the same thing in, uh, with Horkheimer in Dialectic of Enlightenment. So um, my bet is that I'm not at all certain that what these days people are calling affect theory and cruel optimism speak to the full saturation of aesthetics in what's passing for politics now. Meanwhile, the left, and were we to be honest with ourselves, what passes for a left, AKA a radical center, have spent decades discoursing on Walter Benjamin's famous and succinct formulation that, quote, such is the aestheticization of politics as practiced by fascism. Communism replies by politicizing art. End of the quote. And that's from the often cited work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. So then, while the left clung to an interpretation that shifted to ideology and ethics, while simultaneously entrenching its belief in scientific rationality, dialectically elevated to a religion, because science is a religion even, even you know, among uh, those who seek to out, outlaw it. I know that's a very complicated dialectic and we can talk about that later, but there's a sort of rut that, that um, the left has been stuck in. The right, meanwhile, caring nothing for ethics or for science, understood Benjamin's provocation best. For any politics to prevail, aesthetics might be privileged as the primary terrain on which to re-suture thinking and feeling, cognition and affect, a form of cognition that's independent of rational thinking. A, a, a faculty in its own right, just as the uh, philosopher Kant had defined it in 1790's Critique of Judgment, which is a pendant to the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason. So all aesthetics is, is, it, is an attempt to think about what the remainder is when you stop um, thinking practically. So this is not the same thing as, as saying that aesthetics are a priori fascist. The easy collapse of aesthetics with fascism uh, has only served to stoke the now alt-right and to provide it with a vehicle, a sort of Trojan horse via aesthetics, long ago uh, dismissed by the left for its political inefficacy. So as Anna Texera Pinto has noted in the current issue of Texas or Kunz, dedicated to theorizing the new right, and I think it's hilarious that all of these um, publications that have been kind of sleepy for many issues of not many decades have suddenly flared up under, under the provocation of Trump. So, so that's your sort of binary and civil war for you. But the current issue of Texas or Kunz is quite interesting uh, because of Pinto's piece which tries to think about how the alt-right has come into being as a, as a function of aesthetics. So, um, the new right, which she takes to be the unlikely alliance of Silicon Valley, libertarian accelerationism, or uh, as Ben Noyes call it, Thatcher meets Deleuze, corporate nihilism and reactionary masculinist white suprematism and cultural establishment have all come together for her under the rubric of style. There is no other common way to draw all of those things together than through this totally irrational, excessive remainder style. What is that? Like fashion, what is that? 
Um, so she notes, uh, or I note her word style as an unlikely conjuncture of a disparate cast of characters that share no ideology, no politics, no immediate shared project, nothing but a style. So, uh, sort of getting out of my way here. Again, um, Pinto makes it clear that her analysis and synthesis is not to be reduced to saying that the alt-right results from the internet, but that we are to understand style as something that fills the gap left by ideology or technological determination. I only emphasize that because I'm not saying that anything is reducible to, to technology. Um, so it appears that in my attempt to be succinct and brief, of course, I'm totally overprepared because I do that when I'm supposed to be casual and when I'm supposed to be prepared, I'm casual. But um, <laughs> the, the point here is, is just that I, I'm, I'm really struck with this kind of note that um, Pinto and this big ocean of language, what does it all mean, this discourse, this gobbledygook from the art world, she's really sort of struck a note that I think feels absolutely right in drawing together a strange cast of characters under a remainder that she can only put under this, this word, which then begs the question that Benjamin posed about the, the need to um, use any means possible in, in a kind of you know, civil war, if you will, that would even take place in an arena of um, excess, aesthetics. Uh, the, the irrational, because why has the irrational come to be the special property of, of the alt-right uh, that has done much to enervate and, and harm us? Uh, so I just brought some images in that I find interesting in light of what I'm trying to say uh, quickly to, to sort of sum up what Pinto is seeing as this alt-right aesthetic. She's noting uh, the way in which uh, technologies such as Google's Seraph for, for mobile VR, things like this, not only cite a, a kind of uh, art history or, or artistic matrix, but are trying to do the kinds of things that the utopian avant-garde of yore once did, which is to analytically break down everyday life and then present it uh, reconstituted, resynthesized in a utopian totality in a work. Right. That, that was once the kind of communist horizon or communo anarchist horizon of an artist like Seurat. And now that's exactly the, the property of virtual realities and, and VR. But why has that been usurped entirely by a kind of ideology that would stipulate that, no, we must not share capital accumulation. We must accumulate capital so that we can devise ways to escape this dead planet and move on to another, you know, this sort of techno-futurist nihilism of characters like Teal who aren't interested in the sharing of, of capital accumulation but of um, holding it together in a kind of artistic or aesthetic futurism, which is what Benjamin is calling fascism. So I'm, I'm noting uh, what Pinto is speaking to on, on the right, but in my project that's not what abstraction or breaking the world down and, and resuturing it on a, on a picture plane was, was about initially. Uh, it was about the Paris Commune. It was about uh, autonomy, autonomy of consciousness, autonomy from the state, autonomy from you know God, the priest, the the father, etc. Uh, and through the 20th century, this has continued to resonate. The the um, Red Square that Malevich cooks up in 1915 has continued to resonate into the 21st century in these 
moments of spontaneous uh, mass uprising. So the, the student protest of Montreal in 2012-13, which astonished me as an American who just got there, that 300,000 people just spontaneously rose up because tuition was hiked by $3,000. So back when I was applying and all that sort of stuff, in-state tuition for Berkeley was seven dollars to $9,000. Now it's over $50,000. Where is the mass movement? But anyway, that, the, the, that's the point aside. The, the way that this galvanized under the red square was just very striking to me as someone who's worked on this forever and ever. And it resonates in a number of discussions. And then we end there. And I, I think um, I've, I've struck the limit of my time, and I want to stick to it. So I'm open to questions. Hi. Um, when you say that there's nothing to unite the alt-right except for style, the thing that comes to mind for me is that what would unite them, style might be the positive expression, but what unites them is a sense that things have been taken away from them and resentment specifically towards ethnic minorities and women. So how do you respond to that? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, let me, let me make that clear. Um, here, here is how we would define, and we, I'm usurping Pinto's voice, um, the alt-right, a loose coalition of white supremacists, masculinists, anti-feminists, old-school racists, Islamophobes, neo-monarchists, and anti-Semites. In other words, everyone who is um, just um, roiling in the resentiment of entitlement in the sense that the, the, the collective pool isn't going to them as it should be uh, per their historical in, in entitlement. What I mean is that that those groups are so disparate. For some, it's an expression of um, xenophobia. For some, anti-immigration. For some, misogyny. It, it's, it's not internally unified. And so these, these kinds of uh, things begin to happen in pop culture, if you will, that will kind of provide a provisional vehicle or a Trojan horse to temporarily bring together a whole range of, of hatreds. Right, and I'm sorry to clarify, my question yeah. is, I, I would assert that those are unified, that the unification is the sense of loss and some, the, some other taking away what is yours. Why do you think those things are different? Because they don't have a common root. So um, one of the problems that I've been researching since, uh, since the first project came out uh, is, is this, this issue in British Columbia specifically where the kind of history of the workers' movement or the anti-workers' movement that begins on the island, that begins in Victoria in the 1880s, Sarah's time, um, just doesn't gel and in fact has been deeply antagonistic and antithetical to decolonization and in indigenous and aboriginal interests. And as a, as a foreigner landing in this magical land of British Columbia in 2011, I couldn't understand that because both of these are minorities, ostracized, marginalized groups that are expropriated. So why aren't they friends? They're not. In the same way that I've never understood why the communists, the anarchists, the feminists, they're at each other's throats in all these internecine ways in the classroom and in the street. What's with that? 
And so why Pinto's thing is how, how we are divided and they are divided, but how come in their dividedness they seem to have found this, this thing to ride in on? So thanks for this, uh, it's wide ranging. Um, but regard, in regards to sort of what we're up against, whether alt-right has a, a common root or not, um, I wonder what you think about the commonalities that the far right here in the United States has with the far right in Europe and elsewhere, where they um, you know, have like a bunch of the common sort of fascist tropes of like a national rebirth myth and uh, hatred towards immigrants and otherization and all these um, sort of common traits. And uh, they have, in many cases, connections to uh, ideologies and ideologues coming out of Russia and Russian intelligence and some of the other stuff we're seeing with respect to headlines that unfold all the time. Uh, do you think that nation-state interests might be affecting the way aesthetics is used and mobilized in a political context now? Okay, um, to try and hold all that in my head and answer it as best I can, I would say that the second part of what you said was the argument in the first book, which is that as post-war state and market relationships were uh, kind of recalibrating, that moment of recalibration resulted in interesting cultural expression of, of a particular kind. To go back to the first part of what you're saying, I, I think if I heard you correctly, I sort of thought we were saying the same thing, uh, which is that there's a, a, a broad range of interests that, that come together in a field of spectacle, in a kind of aesthetic register. Is, is that, or do you want to repeat the first part? Well, it seems to me we have these commonalities between the far right here in the United States and the far right in Europe. Oh, no, no, that was the great part. That was, your, that was an excellent question. So again, to return to the previous uh, talk in Q&A, I was really stunned camping a few weeks ago um, to, to be exposed to this overly performed uh, joke that that these kids who were they were they kept I say the word kids because they kept repeating that they uh, would be carded because they weren't 19 yet, which is the drinking age in Canada. Um, but they set up these electronic speakers in a little tiny campsite, which was astonishing already on a material level, uh, only to to sort of do a stand-up comic routine of anti-Semitic jokes. And that constellation was insane to me because, first of all, it, it, it was Canada. It wasn't the United States. And then it was specifically mobilizing and summoning fascism in the Second World War as the kind of or um, point of reference that would then resonate across nation states, across Germany. Now, if you want to expand that into whatever the EU means, um, Canada is a nation state, the United States is a nation state, Israel is a nation state. So there's a way in which the politics of the nation state then uh, becomes expanded to be this kind of multinational corporation conglomerate of hell that becomes the global north, right? A kind of future gated community or green zone and the rest of us in a red zone and then the rest of the world can self-detonate as we all seek another home in Mars. It's the politics of the camp there, though. 
I, I hear the politics of the camp, and I, I think that that's answering your question about the kind of internationalism of white hate, which is why I think it's okay to summon the Frankfurt School for the 10 zillionth time, because they were coming out of that post-World War II moment and had an interesting thing or two to say about it that seems relevant. Hi. I am, I want to start by saying I'm really excited by what you're showing, especially um, some of these, the way that you framed kind of the way that you're talking about them. Um, to be clear for everybody, I am a writer about art and I'm going to talk later. And, you know, Jale is an art historian and we both sort of look at each other nervously, like she's going to know more than me. She's going to be friendlier than me. She's going to like, you know, all, like all these sort of stereotypes about like what it means to think about and theorize mm. and then rephrase and reframe the stuff that we look at. So I just want to say I am I so want I want to go away for the weekend with you. I have many things that I want to discuss. Um, it's a good thing we are sort of away for the weekend. But, um, but, uh, but, but one thing I want to ask you, and that, you know, I, I hope that you're able to come to my talk because there's a, there's a way that this is all gonna to come together and possibly you're gonna tell me how to live my life better. Um, and for real, and uh, you'll, you'll all see what I mean. And, um, you know, looking at the way that these works deploy text and the kind of like the, the like huge problem of text um, I, and trying to get, trying to say something and really struggling to figure out how um, and the problem of directness and the always having indirection embedded in it and this kind of political economic engine that then takes text and does so many perverted things with it. Um, but, but my question is really simple, and it's about um, labor, but it's personal. I would like to know, um, if, if you don't mind, what would you do for a living if you weren't an art historian, given all of your convictions? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great question. And it's a problem of how one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another in a kind of sutured way. So one thing, uh, when I was in high school, I really dreaded a variety of labors and works. I worked in a t-shirt shop, mostly selling things like Grateful Dead stickers and t-shirts at exorbitant prices that could never be afforded. And I, I really didn't want a waitress. I was in mortal dread of waitressing for a number of reasons. And I wanted instead, because I've been perceived my whole life and I'm, I'm convinced to my dying day that this has something physiognomic to do with the hostage crisis and eyebrows and Iranians and you know, the moment between 1979 and 1983. But anyway, I'm often perceived as extremely antagonistic. So I thought waitressing would be a disaster, but I could be a very good security guard. And I was. I made an enormous amount. I supported a lot. So college uh, was funded due to all of those programs that are now shrinking under the right. I'm a product of all of those 
sort of liberal um, public sector, vaguely soft Keynesian forms of trying to distribute capital. Um, and I was a very good security guard and I, I enjoyed it because I liked looking at works and thinking for a long time and then describing them. So I just landed at Columbia with the October group. It was a lot less, I ended up in a class with first Buchlo and then Krauss, absolute accident. And I found that using the computers in the computer lab, because I didn't have my own and everyone else did, it cut out a lot of time to do art history rather than history or English. Because it involved doing that thing that I was good at doing, which was looking and thinking and sort of taking the text out. So I don't know. That led me to something absolutely unsustainable. Art history is very, very difficult, and I worry about all my students all the time. I don't know what I would do um, if I were not an art historian. I know that when I landed in the Pacific Northwest and uh, in Vancouver, I felt for the first time completely autonomous and on my own and went into panic mode and went snuffling around and what plan B might be if I didn't get tenure. And uh, I kept hooking my ship onto a, a vague utopian notion of mutual aid because I have a very strong pack of close friends from college who are colleagues. So what, what can I say? I would look to my friends. That's not very strong. I don't know. It was, it's, everything has been on a, on a, on a prayer and a one month to the year to the, it's in a lot of family support and a whole village of chaos. Yeah. And also um, grants and funds that are all shrinking. I'm really blown away and kind of overwhelmed by your talk, mostly because I don't understand a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, at the least, your talk has really like blown the top out of my understanding of what's going on socially and politically in our world. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm just sort of swimming. Yeah. <laughs> so at the risk of sounding like, uh, you know, somebody who's not smart, <laughs> I'm hoping you could just describe to me what you mean when you talk about aesthetic in this context, and then like in a nutshell, help me understand what you're saying. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Um, so I didn't get to any of that because of, as you say, this very long-winded kind of language. I used to worry about that a lot with students, and then I recognized, and again, it's always a bad idea to replicate the self, but I recognized that as the primary experience of what was so refreshing about college, is that people talked in these ways that was un understandable, but then it was interesting if you probed it. So this thing that is now my sort of policy with students is after every class they have this list of vocabulary and it becomes this kind of cybernetic loop of, of figuring out and becoming a common language, which is all an aesthetic criteria is. So what do I mean by aesthetics? We live in a world where everything is a cell and a box. Our cubicle, our computer, our screen, our car, um, you know, what we think of as beautiful in the form of minimalism, um, Calvin Klein ads right on it, you know, this idea of neatness and zen that um, came up earlier. This is an aesthetic. And this is an aesthetic that replicates a state and a market order, whether we are conscious of it or not. So I know it's abstract. It's not a picture. It's not a word. 
It's a distribution of bodies and spaces, right? How we act, how we think, the mechanical order of the day. The clock goes off every damn day at six, and every day follows every other day. This seriality is an aesthetic. Now, the post-industrial world where we're now supposedly flexy and precarious, and that too has come with an aesthetic. It has a broad range of propaganda on TV, in the dating world, in Hallmark, I mean, this, the flexi, right, that was supposed to be cool at the beginning until we all realized what was going on there, which was pay to play and you don't get paid and that kind of thing. So that's what I mean by aesthetic, but it's hard to recognize. And that's why we bear together in a way uh, and in that process of being on this raft of otherwise thinking of what the hell do we mean when we use these words, suddenly a kind of, um, for lack of a better word, because again, I, I'm, I don't buy my own work hook, line, and sinker, but this shared thing we did together, it made its own provisional, autonomous world of friends that carried us through time. So that's an aesthetic. Yeah, under the current state of emergency, I feel like we am sort of impelled to pull something practical out of everything I hear right now. And what uh, I take your talk to be telling us is that, uh, like language, which the right co-opted much more yeah. effectively than the left for their political purposes, they've also co-opted aesthetic as an alternative way to draw people together and to command uh, power. Do you think that there's a way that the left could take on aesthetic in our, as an alternative to our rationalist approach that we tend to favor natively. Yeah, I, I do. And uh, I often hear that that's a very naive position that I take because I do think it's still possible to take that, to use a metaphor, sort of historical horse by, by the mane or the reins or however you want to think of that, which is why I look to the rare cultural objects that I look to the problem is they walk a very fine line between theory and praxis, which is immediately institutionalized as terrorism. So that's difficult. Uh, but in terms of um, practice, that's what forms of autonomy are, forms of hijacking, rerouting. Um, the, the artist Claire Fontaine have a work entitled Redemption. And it's interesting to me because on the one hand, it's tapping into art, which is very much this Judeo-Christian thing from Hegel on, redemption and Benjamin. And, but on the other hand, the redemption is that you can smolt the cans and continue to make value circulate in the interest of your own self-replication. There's some practical import to these wacky ideas um, in moments of, of, you know, when push comes to shove in the situation one would be surprised what tools and resources one finds if one even allows oneself to be autonomous for a nanosecond, because we are overmanaged. Citizen cursor. Thank you. Um, I just sort of, it made me think about um, the earlier talking camping. Um, just as, um, I guess the way that, that, that camping um, is such a um, sort of political or a, a, like leisure aesthetic that, that has so much to do with whiteness um, and the history in Europe um, 
of sort, you know, like German being out in nature kind of thing mm -hmm. that gets reiterated by the Boy Scouts and so on and so forth. Um, but it makes me think about camping um, as a kind of like colonial or imperial gesture, you know, where you're going out and being in nature, but you brought everything with you and you're setting up camp. Um, and somehow, I don't know what it, what it, what it looks like, but you know, that the right is camping and um, is being in nature in this particular way. And the left is, is just sort of dropping out. And that's what you're talking about in terms of being autonomous, that we're sort of doing something else all the time. You know, that's, is that the sort of? Yeah, okay, so notice this vis-a-vis -vis camping. On the one hand, what's emerging sort of today is that it has this reactionary streak as compensatory leisure for often nationalist, racist, white people. On the other hand, there's an enormous world population now that is forced into the camp. You know, and so if I have to pull out theory, because that's what I do, it'd be a gomben. How the camp has become the sort of model for the world. So you have one demographic, and Pinto also puts this well, who's doing this as a kind of a leisure activity. They are those of the gated community. While the rest of the world is sort of thrown out there and has to do it, not for leisure, but in this kind of sink or swim way, what's notable there is the shared aesthetic, which is obscene to say that the favela is an aesthetics, but the word has been floated, favela aesthetics. What both those things have in common, the leisure practice of the, the reactionary white supremacist and, and an enormous um, displaced world population of refugees that matches the Shoah in numbers and the count of bodies. It says a lot about the Earth's habitability on some broader level. So there is some common root or matrix or nexus, but we don't see it because we, we keep deferring everything to, oh, this ideology, that interest, this um, again, a way of setting many who are being marginalized, who are the surplus of capital, who will not be in the gated communities at each other's throats through these kinds of divisive um, ideologies. So camping, even that we're having this conversation where we could trace this spectrum, is already having a conversation about aesthetics that never happens unless you, you precipitate the question because it would be seen as trivial or cosmetic or, you know, leisure. So, you know, art ends up absorbing a lot of these questions, which is why these former supposed radicals and terrorists of history like Negri, where do they show up to give their talks these days? It's always the Tate, the MoMA, because of the way in which art absorbs this excess discussion that's getting squeezed out of representational politics. <laughs>